Today's scripture reading is from the book of Hebrews chapter 3 beginning from verse 7. Therefore as the Holy Spirit says, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. This is God's word. Sunday mornings we're studying the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews has a very simple theme running through it. In fact, I would recommend you write it in your Bible. Do you all know you can write in your Bible? It's not sacrilegious. You can write in it. The word is holy. The paper's not. Uh, but the theme is very simple. Jesus is greater than. So just write Jesus in a big fat, you know, greater than sign. He's greater than religion. He's greater than anything you and I have ever seen or come out of. Jesus is greater. Why? Because chapter 2 tells us that he who made the worlds took on a human body, died for our sins, paved the way for our forgiveness. And here's the great thing. He's become a merciful and great high priest who knows exactly what we're going through. He had a body like ours. So really, Jesus is the fulfillment of all that we've ever known. Now, the writer is writing, listen, to the Hebrews, to first century Christ followers who were predominantly coming out of the Jewish faith. And what he's trying to tell them is that Jesus has completed everything for them. You know, tradition can be a good thing, but without Jesus, it's not a good thing. Uh, we studied that last week in Easter. Paul said, if there is no resurrection, everything we're doing is hollow, it's vain, it's a waste of time. Our preaching, gathering here at church, all that we might do is a waste if Christ isn't raised from the dead. So tradition makes the word of God to no effect. And so writing to these Jewish believers, he's trying to convince them that all they've ever known, the worship in the temple, the sacrifices, eating kosher, the Sabbath day, the law, even their great leaders we're going to find, like Moses and Joshua, you know, all of that was pointing to Christ is no longer necessary. And here's the point. It's going to take two weeks to kind of nail this down. We, you and I who now believe, have been called to enter into God's rest. Faith is a rest. There's no more striving. There's no more wondering. So many religious systems, people don't know what's going to happen when they die. And they're climbing religious ladders, whether it's through sacraments or, or incantations or whatever good works they're doing. Faith now for you and me is a rest. I can rest knowing my salvation is in the hands of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that's going to separate that from me, not famine or sword or anything that can come upon this earth. That I am firmly in the palm of his hand. Jesus is greater than all of these things. Now, the Sabbath is one of those things the Jews revered. 
And as other cultures looked at it, they had a hard time understanding it. Many cultures thought the Hebrews had a, what they called a lazy day, a day where they would do nothing. They couldn't understand it because, like in our day, it's another day to be productive. So why would you cease from all your labor? For those of you who like to read, everyone should read Abraham Joshua Heschel. This man swims in the deep end of the pool. He's not a Christian, he's a Jew. And his classic is called simply Sabbath. I wore out my copy. I just went on Amazon, used bookstore, trying to find another copy. I mean, it's just tremendous. And he walks you through what it's like being a child anticipating the Sabbath. Now, some of us might think, oh my gosh, the Sabbath. Here's a day of rest. It's a religious day. Uh, the Sabbath wasn't a have to. It was a get to. And he talks about as a child watching his dad get all the games out and prepare the house for the Sabbath. And then mom would do all the cooking because you're not allowed to cook on the Sabbath. And how they would look forward to being with family. Imagine this, being with family alone for an entire day. Friday night, the first star comes out, the Sabbath starts. You spend all night with the family. Saturday you go to the congregation um, and, and you fellowship with God's people. And he talks about how wonderful it was. Now, you and I have lost that. Now, Christ is our rest. We don't celebrate the Sabbath. We rest in Christ. But boy, have, have we lost that. I mean, few and far between, how often do we ever get together like that? You, you know, to me, when we really do it right, snow days, right? Only when it snows. So for me, a day of rest is a day I do not get in my car. I love those days. They're few and far between. And you get snowed in with one another, and you sit around, and you eat, nobody works. It's really cool, right? They had that every single week. And as great as the Sabbath was, Jesus has become our Sabbath. Now, on the Sabbath day when you would go to synagogue, there was an opening reading of Scripture, and many times, the majority of the time, it's what you and I have just read in Hebrews. It comes out of Psalm 95. Look at verse 7 again. Uh, it says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, who wrote the Bible? Man wrote the Bible. David wrote Psalm 95. Who wrote the Bible? God wrote the Bible. It says right here, the Holy Spirit wrote Psalm 95. And they would, they would listen to these verses. Today, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. They did in the rebellion. God was angry with them, so forth and so on. Why was that a Sabbath reading? Why was it necessary for them to read that? It was a reminder to them, an instruction. That there was a congregation in the wilderness who God had great things for. A land flowing with milk and honey. Great and precious promises, a land they would possess. That God would fight their battles for them. And here's the problem, they fell short of it. They never entered that land. All the people that came out of Egypt died in the wilderness. Their bodies, their carcasses fell. They never entered into the best that God had for them. And so they would read this on the Sabbath saying, may this never be said of us. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, all of these things, the entire Old Testament particularly the wilderness wanderings, were written for our instruction and our learning upon whom the ends of the ages has come. So God has found it necessary to remind us that we're prone to this. In fact, you're going to see the word later, beware, lest an evil heart of unbelief be in you. The word beware means beware. In other words, it can happen to us if we're not careful. Now, Jesus has become our rest. He said, all you who are weary... And heavy laden, come unto me and I will give you rest. I think most of us have done that. 
We were weary from religion. We were weary from guilt. We were weary from shame. We were were burdened by tradition and the things of men. And we've come to Christ and it was wonderful and it was beautiful. And now we enter into faith and we enter into a rest. Now, the life of rest in God is a life of faith. When we get to Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to talk a lot about faith. What it is, what it isn't. Because in our day, across the board, people have all kinds of ideas. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things we cannot see. And by it, the elders obtained a good report. Verse 3 says, by faith we understand God framed the worlds so that the things we see were made from things that are invisible. We can only understand that by faith. Now, I'm going to say something, and I want you to think this through. Every human being on the earth walks by faith. Whether you're serving God or serving yourself, whether you're going for a career to make millions of dollars, whatever walk of life you're from, you are walking by faith. So, let's say you're an atheist. Let's say you want nothing to do with God. Let's say you want to go for the gusto. You want to be successful and prosperous. There's a series of things you must trust. First of all, you have to trust the U.S. economy. You have to trust the stock market. You have to trust investors and partners, relationships, your spouse. There's a series of things you must trust, which in the natural is a house of cards, literally, if you study history. But you have to trust it to be successful. It's the same in the kingdom of God. Those of us who walk with God, we walk by faith and not by sight. We follow a God who calls those things that are as though they weren't. In other words, God wants us to walk by faith. He doesn't want us to strive. Faith is a rest. But we rest knowing that that God's rest is his best, not only for you and me, but for our congregation at large. Now, we have this wonderful picture, right? A picture's worth a thousand words. And the picture is Israel in the wilderness. You know, since I was a child, I loved pop-up books. I just have always loved them. And we have a pop-up book called the Old Testament, the nation of Israel. They leave Sinai. They have the law. They have the tabernacle. And they're going to enter the land. And last week at Easter, I said to you, they took complaining to an art form, right? They grumbled. They complained. Like, I mean, they were pros, right? So if there's any Bible scholars in here, how long do you think after they were out of Egypt... It took for them to complain. How many days? Three. Three days. Now, think about this. Ten plagues come on Egypt. The greatest superpower in the world is succumbed. Pharaoh and his army dies in the Red Sea. They have a praise service on the other side. Miriam has a tambourine. Moses is singing, and they're saying, the horse and the rider is thrown in the sea. They have a pillar of cloud. They've seen all these miracles. And three Stinking days later, they're grumbling and complaining. And we laugh at them, but that's why we have midweek, right? You know, you guys are all worshiping here on Sunday, and then by Wednesday you're falling apart, so we have to have a midweek. No one saw more miracles in the hand of God than the congregation in the wilderness. And they come to a place called Kadesh Barnea and never forget it. At Kadesh Barnea, they got a glimpse. They could see into the land. The land flowing with milk and honey. This is the land God promised for them. He promised he would be their people and they would be their God. Every Jew would sit under his vine and his fig tree. There would be a light unto all the nations. 
And they come to Kadesh. The word Kadesh means holy. Now, to be holy doesn't mean you don't curse or chew or go out with the girls that do. It doesn't mean you're a goody two-shoes, right? Holiness simply means you're set apart. And God would set Israel apart in this land. This tribe of desert nomads would change the way we all think and feel. They didn't know that yet. And God was setting them apart. He was going to make them unique. They were going to keep holy the Sabbath. They would have the law of God. They would be unlike any other nation. If they would walk by faith, God would make them holy. On our men's retreat, Jonathan Evans was with us. Jonathan is the son of Tony Evans, legendary preacher. And Jonathan played for the Dallas Cowboys. And I was interviewing Jonathan. I said, Jonathan, you know, I got saved sophomore year, junior year. I'm back in the locker room. Now I'm a Christian. And, you know, you were in a professional locker room. I mean, how do you not be ashamed of the gospel or be ashamed to be a Christian? And this 32-year-old kid gives me the greatest answer I ever heard. He said, the other guys aren't ashamed. They're not ashamed they're fornicating and doing drugs. They're not ashamed of anything. Why should I be ashamed? I thought, wow, that's what holiness is. God set us apart for a reason. Kadesh means holy or set apart. Barnea means crossroads. And it was a Kadesh Barnea where Israel had to decide, and all of us in this room and every human being must decide, are we going to enter into God's rest? Are we going to walk in the things of God? Or are we going to walk by sight? Are we going to chart our own course? And Kadesh Barnea is a place of the heart because we're going to find out they harden their hearts. It's a place where we choose. And Moses said, I choose life. And Joshua said, for me and my house, I choose the Lord. There's blessings, there's cursings, there's all these things, but we choose. And Kadesh Barnea is a place that we all come to. And it's a place where we can see the things of God. We can't realize them yet. We can taste them. We, we know they're there, and yet God has called us into them. Now, they get to Kadesh Barnea. If you read the text, uh, Moses says, the Lord says to Moses, send spies in the land. In other words, do a reconnaissance mission. And we find out later in Deuteronomy that the only reason God commanded that is because the people grumbled and complained. You see, the, the promised land was the only plan. There was no plan B. But because they were grumbling and complaining, God said, all right, listen, Moses, tell them to send spies in the land. Tell them to go through the land, take one guy from every tribe, send 12 in, and they'll tell you if what I'm saying is not true. And let them bring an object lesson. We'll do a show and tell. Bring fruit of that land. So 12 spies go into the land. And there's a majority report. Ten of them say, yeah, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. And they have this object lesson. And I don't know if you've ever seen the picture. It's like one guy has a big pole on his shoulder. And the other guy has one. And there's grapes in the middle the size of softballs. They're like, yeah, this is a great land. Nevertheless, that's the voice of unbelief. Nevertheless, the people that dwell there are strong. The cities, they're fortified. Giants are there, the sons of Anak. There's Amalekites, Canaanites, Perizzites, flashlights, termites. The land's full of them. Here's what unbelief does. This is what a hardened heart does. You begin to see circumstances different than they are. Do I believe the cities were fortified? Yeah. Do I believe the people were strong? Yeah. Do I believe everyone was strong? No. But that's what unbelief does. Unbelief convinces you the circumstances are first, are far worse than you can believe. 
Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, give a minority report. They say, yeah, the land's tough. There's fortified cities. And here's the voice of faith. But we can overcome. There's giants there, but there's no cowboys and redskins, so we think we can do it. It's a football joke. We can overcome. Majority says, no. Um, these people are strong, and we are not able. They're stronger than we, and, and here's what doomed them. This is a land that eats people alive. And the Bible says they gave a bad report to Israel. God said it was a good land. They said it is a land that eats people for lunch, and we were like grasshoppers in their sight. I'm reading a book called Wisdom of Crowds by James Soralke. And I've been fascinated by decision-making my whole life. And there's this conundrum. Who makes a better decision, the group or the individual? And it's pretty hard to choose. So think about the Bible. Uh, Eve's an individual. She made a horrific choice, right? Uh, but so did the crowd, right? The crowd was asked, do you want Jesus or Barabbas? And they wanted Barabbas, right? So in this book, The Wisdom of Crowds, the writer goes through with case study after case study and concludes that the group is generally better if certain dynamics are in place. But in this case, the crowd got it wrong. And for 40 years, Caleb, Joshua, Moses, and everybody was in the wilderness, and they all died in the wilderness. Because the majority report won out, and they said, we can't overcome. And God would not allow them in. And they never saw his best. They never entered his rest. Uh, my favorite, another football analogy, my favorite in this is, if, if you all know football, you get four downs, right? So if it's third down and one or more, you usually punt, right? So you make the other team have longer to go. But a lot of times if it's third and inches, the crowd will say, go for it. They're all cheering, right? And I think it was Paul Brown, I'm not sure, but he once said, you know what? If you're a coach and you listen to the crowd, one day you might be sitting with the crowd, Okay. <laughs> And that's what happened. The wisdom of crowds. Forty years in the wilderness. Why? The writer of Hebrews tells you. Unbelief. Tells you that God was angry with them. Verse 18. To whom did he swear they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey. And we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. The, the warning here. This is where we got to listen. The warning is a hard heart. The warning of unbelief is a hardened heart. And, and you wonder, how does a heart get hard? Because the term we use when somebody gets saved is they're on fire for God. Your heart's beating out of your chest. How does a heart that's fully alive and surrendered to God become hard? And I think as you look at this pop-up book, as you look at Israel, you'll understand. Proverbs says to guard your heart because out of it flows the issues of life. Proverbs says the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? It needs guardrails and scaffolding. It needs the word of God to keep it right and pure. It needs the washing of the water of the word to keep it soft. William Lane, who has written a fantastic commentary on Hebrews, gives this definition for a hardened heart. He says a hardened heart is one that treats the Lord with contempt. Contempt means a lack of respect or putting someone in their rightful place. And the second is choosing to listen to human voices rather than the voice of God or Scripture. So let's do a little diagnostic just to see where we all are. When I ask these four questions, just 
Look at your own life and see how you kind of flush out here. When it comes to decision making and hearing the voice of God, are you, are you more prone to please people or God? In other words, when God says take this step, do you try and get buy-in from everyone else? Or are you afraid if people don't buy in? Number two, are you quick to grumble and complain about life circumstances? Three, are you calloused and unappreciative towards not only your blessings, but when others get blessed? Does it anger you to see somebody else getting more blessing than you get? And number four, are you gripped by the paralysis of analysis? The Bible says he who observes the wind will never sow. Israel went in and they observed and they calculated and they all died in the wilderness. These four answers will tell you where your heart is and whether you're walking by faith and whether you're resting in the things of God. Now here's what's important. Rest was synonymous with life in Canaan. Now, Canaan land was not a type of heaven. There's all these old spirituals and these wonderful songs about the sweet by and by and we'll be in Canaan land. Gosh, I hope there's no giants in heaven. I hope there's no fortified cities. I want to be done with it. Canaan land is a type of this life. And I want to tell you in this life, there will be seasons, trials, and difficult situations. How do I know? Because Canaan had that. There were Perizzites, Amalekites. There were people Israel had to drive out. Now, God said, I'll drive them out, but you must take a step. Everywhere your foot steps, I will give you that land. So everything Israel went through, we will go through in Canaan. But Canaan is the place that God blessed. It's the place of rest. We'll face giants in our Christian walk. There's giants in our land. There's the giants of political agendas, secular humanism, materialism, illicit sex, atheism in our halls of higher education, drugs, goes on and on. We have fortified cities in our land. Entrenched lies like evolution. And some others. If you walk long enough with God, you'll go through a wilderness experience. You might find yourself in the land between. You're not in Egypt. You're not in Canaan. You're somewhere in the middle. The heavens are like brass. We're all going to drink from the bitter waters of Marah, like Israel did. But we're going to experience the blessings of God. We're going we're to drink water from a rock. We're going to get life from a source we never thought we would. We're all going to go to Elam, the place of the 70 palms, where there's an oasis that God provides in the midst of a valley. The Christian experience is filled with all of these things. And the way it becomes a rest is we walk by faith and not by sight in the place and the will of God where he wants us to be. So how do we avoid hard-heartedness? Again, verse 12 says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any evil heart of unbelief in departing, departing from the living God, departing from his ways, departing from his spirit. Real quick, these are very short. Number one, look at verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, Verse 13, but exhort one another daily while it's called today. Verse 15, it is said today if you will hear his voice. So I read those verses and then I got out all my tools. All my tools, not the computer, it's my concordance and dictionary and all my tools. And I looked up the word tomorrow. 
And I wanted to find how many verses where God said, listen to my voice tomorrow, start reading your Bible tomorrow, serve tomorrow, give tomorrow. I wanted to see how many verses I could find. How many do you think I found? Zero. Here's what God ministered to me. What can I do today in God's kingdom to be close to him? What can I do today before my head hits the pillow where I can add value to the kingdom of God and my relationship with God? Now, we just did something today that I love. I know a lot of you give online. That's a beautiful thing, and I'm not against that. That's why we do it. I love to physically give in the offering. You know why? Because in our materialistic, you know, it's all about me culture where I can get the next toy or the next thing, I love to put money in an offering basket. Because in the spirit realm, I'm giving Satan a black eye. It's my way of saying to him, you don't have me and you're not going to win. Because I'm taking this money, which I can do something else with, and I'm giving it to God and I'm giving it to the things of God. And you go through your day, and it's one of the reasons I encourage you. Somewhere in the day, you have to infuse yourself with something spiritual. Whether it's a podcast, or reading, or praying, you have to become a self-feeder. Somebody in the early service said they like to go to Longwood Gardens and just think uh, great thoughts. I'm like, uh, the heart's desperately wicked. You can think great thoughts, but you need this into your spirit. This isn't a book. This is life. It's life-giving. There's, there's something that goes into your spirit when you read the Word of God. So what can you do today? Where can you serve? Where can you give? When can you speak with God? When can you hear His voice? The second thing that softens the heart is you need to take a stress test. If you went to the doctor and said you were short of breath, your heart hurts, chest pains, whatever, he would give you a stress test. Why? He wants to see how your heart does under stress. Now, most of you know we are who we are under stress. Everybody can be nice and wonderful when there's no stress. That's why in sports, you always put the stress on the other team. You press them, you blitz them, because you'll find out how they can handle things. I was talking to a, a manager I really respect, a great company, and he was telling me that whenever they hire new people, day one, they put them right in the fire. They put them in the hardest job. They don't baby them, get them used to the culture. They put them right in the fire. They want to know right away what these people are made of. Uh, in the world of athletics, when you bring up a baseball player from the minor leagues, you don't sit him on the bench and coddle him. Usually he's right in the starting lineup. They want to throw him in the fire to see what he's made of. So stress brings out who we really are. Sometimes you have to give yourself a stress test. Um, there was a lady who went to Israel with us last year. And she came up to me after and she said, Pastor Bob, I just want to let you know, I'm an introvert. I don't take trips with people. I don't room with people. But God told me to go on this trip and I stepped out by faith. And it was hard, but I did it. And I want to let you know that I'm still meeting with three of those women today six months later, and it's helped me immensely. That woman purposely put herself in a situation that she needed to see God's favor, just like Israel needed to see the walls come down at Jericho. She needed to see God work on her behalf. I know missionaries who were full-time in the field who 
had a terrible experience. They got sick the first time and they didn't think God could use them. And they went back again and put themselves in a situation and found tremendous things. Third thing we can do is guard against idolatry. Nothing hardens a heart faster than idolatry. John the Apostle wrote us the Gospel of John, the book of Revelation, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he signs off by saying, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Power, prestige, education, money, leisure, religion, popularity, ego, illicit sex, sports. I mean, the idols of our day are aplenty. And very quickly they erode the love of God in each one of us. And, and it's no different from any relationships, no different from a marriage. How does a marriage cool? How do you get a hard heart? Communication breaks down. Or you stop talking to someone and days and weeks go by and all of a sudden there's this block. And the same thing happens with God. And we find ourselves walking by sight and walking in unbelief. Number four, we need to be courageous. Caleb and Joshua, we can overcome. We can do this. Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. One of the things I love about God is desires of your heart were probably there from the time you were a little boy and a little girl. And God just loves bringing those things to pass. He loves to give you the desires of your heart. But he wants us to, to, to find our delight and our pleasure in him. He's the giver of all good things. And then finally, never, excuse me, never assume that a relationship with God, even if you're born again, automatically gives you the blessings of God. This is very important. Keith Green said it in the 70s. I can't improve on it. He said, sitting in a McDonald's does not make you a hamburger, and sitting in a garage does not make you a car. Now, I didn't fall off the turnip tree yesterday. I know there's people in this church that kind of like it around here. We've got a cafe, the heat and air conditioning work. They like the Sunday school. People are like, this is a cool place. And now that I have kids, i got to get religious. And, and they're just hanging around. And look, we love that you're hanging around. A lot of people that hung around entered the doors of faith, and that's a beautiful thing. But here's what Jesus said. Some people are building their house on sand. They're hanging around. And some people are building on the rock. They're really, really tracking with God. We all look the same. Remember, those who came out of Egypt were a mixed multitude. Mixed. And when the stress comes, the trials of life, the storms, you're going to see one stand and the other fall. Paul said they all drank from that spiritual rock that was Christ. They all ate the manna. They all saw the miracles. They saw more miracles than any people group in any congregation, and they all died in the wilderness. Every last one. And the writer of Hebrews is urging us not to make the same mistake. That there's something greater that God has for us. That we would enter his rest. There's a new book out, kind of picking up a lot of steam, called The Benedict Option by Rod Dreher. It's another one of these series of books saying, how are we going to minister to a post-Christian nation? And this warning's been coming for a long time that, you know, years ago, 40 years ago, when you witness to someone, chances are they were raised in church, they know the Bible, they know about Samson, they know the story of Noah, etc. 
But now when you witness the people, they probably were raised on Sunday morning cartoons. Uh, it's kind of like Paul and Athens. You've got to start from scratch, which I actually think is a more level playing field. But that's an argument for another day. And so the, the, the big talk is we're going to become like Europe. We're going to be a vestige of Christianity, etc., etc. And so this is the latest book, and, and I'm halfway through. Uh, the idea is there was a 6th century monk named Benedict who saw the barbarianism that was Rome and retreated with a community of people into a monastery where they became a community that kept values intact and later on were very desirable. Now, there's nothing new under the sun, right? These books have been written in all these cures and, you know, I've read most of this stuff. Here's what I know. The church has two moves. 2,000 years, it has two moves. One, retreat, and the other is join. In other words, join the culture or retreat from it. Uh, Jesus still had the best idea, be in the world, but not of it. Okay? And every generation has got to figure that one out. When the new community of believers were filled with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, when they looked around at one another, they grasped for a word that would signify who they were. And they didn't create a new word. They reached for a Greek word that already existed called the ecclesia. The ecclesia was a group of people called out of the general population. So if there was a political group, you were the ecclesia. You were pulled out of the general population to form an economic group. Same with sports or any other thing. And the early church said, we are the ecclesia. We have been called out of darkness into the kingdom of his son. Therefore, we're different. We are this new nation, a holy people, a priesthood. And there's something that should be desirable about us. The word ecclesia, translated later, meant the church or congregation or assembly. Uh, you don't have to turn there. I want to read you this from Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. It says, Coming to him, Jesus, as to a living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, these are believers, you and me, as living stones are being built up, a spiritual house. That translation is a temple. A holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter is saying, God doesn't dwell in houses or temples made by men's hands. It doesn't happen anymore. It was all fulfilled in Christ. Today, you and I have become bricks, stones. Do you ever see bricks? They're interlocking. Brick by brick, God has built this thing called the church. We are wonderfully intertwined together. I had a friend years ago, this is at least 12 years ago, who came to pray with me in my office every Thursday at 1 o'clock. Never missed. He would leave his work, come pray with me, go back. Never missed a Thursday. Um, he was kind of the forerunner of a lot of people that do that with me today or for me. And he did this for a while and then he tried to plant a church somewhere, and then for his wife's job, he moved about an hour away, and somehow we lost contact for a couple of years. 
And he called me back on the phone one day. He needed a job recommendation. You ever get on the phone and you're wondering, oh boy, I wonder where this person is spiritually. So I waited and I made small talk and then I asked the dreaded question, oh, where are you going to church? He goes, I don't go to church. He goes, don't worry about it. I'm, I'm still a Christian. I just don't go to church. And I'm like, well, what's that like on Sunday? He goes, it's great. I cut the grass. You know, I can watch football at one o'clock. Uh, it, it's like having another day off. And I got to tell you how sad I was. Because for 35 years of my life, the church has been the greatest thing I've been a part of. And I am convinced there's nothing like it. Is it messy? Yes. Is there hypocrites? Yes. But the last time I checked, they're at Wegmans, they're at the movie theater, they're at the Phillies game. You tell me there's nobody at the Phillies game, 38,000, who's a hypocrite? When the church is working well, there is nothing like this on the planet. I've experienced it. I taste it. I don't come here because I'm the pastor. I come here because I would go to church as a Christian. And see, when your heart is childlike and when it's soft, you walk in, you begin to worship. Every word from the word of God is sweet. Uh, you're not analyzing. You're not, you're not parsing things out. There's no grumbling, complaining. Do we all fall short? Yes. But the church is the hope of the world. It's one of the most beautiful things God's ever created. And Peter says, we are interlocked. We were born for one another. We were born for community. And research bears it out, and every study bears this out. They study children's brains. And children who have more interaction with their parents, more interaction with relatives, they have more people holding them, have bigger brains, they're smarter, they do better in life. The worst thing you can do to an infant is leave them alone. And it's the same thing with you and me. Peter said, block by block, God is putting us together. It's a beautiful thing. And we get to serve together. We get to see people come to faith together. And we walk by faith together. The ecclesia, the called out ones. And we get to see the walls come down. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against us. We get to see God work on our behalf and bring people into the kingdom. You know, as a pastor, I'm called to feed and protect. And I'll do that to the day I die. The one thing I'll not do is try and keep all the sheep in the pen. There's a lot of people that are into that, like, all right, let's keep all the sheep in the pen, right? We'll rail against the culture. We'll rail against the president. We'll talk about how we're the only ones teaching the word of God and everybody else is wrong. And we'll keep everybody happy. No, James says what you'll do is bite and devour one another. Want to keep everybody happy? Go into the highways and the byways and compel them to come in. You know what moves my heart today? The person who's at a champagne breakfast or lunch, who doesn't know their right hand from their left hand, because I was that person one day, until the grace of God appeared to me. And the reason I do what I do is I want everyone to experience the best that God has, because I've tasted it, and I know what it looks like. And there's nothing like walking in the land that God has for you. And so if you're at a crossroads this morning, if you're at a place where you can see the land of God, but you're thinking about what it looks like on the other side, I just pray that when we sing and fellowship, that God would soften your heart. I was so blessed last night. I was in 
a couple's home where they, this, these two ladies had gone to India on their own and ministered there. And, and at the end, we were going to have a time of prayer. And uh, right before we did, they said, you know, you don't have to go to India to pray for people. We could pray right here. And the one girl said that two weeks ago, she was in church here at Calvary, and God downloaded into her something for the girl that was in front of her. And um, as most of us are, we kind of were afraid to do it, so the service ended, and she never did it. And God said, you better chase that person down. So she ran, literally ran the person down, told this person what God told her, and at the end they were both weeping and crying. That doesn't happen via podcast. That doesn't happen sitting on the beach, looking at the sunset, reading your own Bible. You can do that if you want. I mean... Not every week you can't do it. See, see, here's, here's what I found out. I will never know the totality of God apart from all of you. I can watch sunsets till the cows come home. And I can read the Bible on my own till the cows come home. But it's only through the dynamic of other people, the brick upon brick, do I understand the totality of who God is. If that woman who gave her last two pennies was never described to me, my, there would be a void in my understanding of God. There would be a void in my understanding of God if I didn't live 35 years with people like you and see God work and see how God worked through other people. We were made for one another. The writer of Hebrews says, there was a congregation who fell short and we don't want that to happen to you. And neither do I. There is a rest, and there's God's best. And we've got to choose. 